welcome back to Just FYI Pod. My name is Chris Barnett. I'm here with my co-host, Amy Welburn. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's a beautiful day. It's hard not to do well. It is. You can hear the leaf blower in the distance. <laughs> yeah. And it is a beautiful day for December. I mean, it's been pretty chilly in Alabama. Right. Um, but today it kind of warmed up just for us, I'm just sure. Just for us. Right? Yeah. So we have sort of like mid-60s mm-hmm. sunshine. Um, and so we're here to record another episode. Looking forward to it. Um, in the meantime, yeah. what's been going on with you this past week? I mean, just doing Advent things like a good Catholic. Oh, uh, right. Such as what, what Advent things? I'd say I put out the Advent wreath. Okay. You oh, know, you mean like literally set out the Advent? <laughs> is that, is that your number one sort of? I don't have little kids anymore. Yeah. You yeah. know, so it's not the same kind of like liturgical living, yeah. intense, like Jesse Tree kind of stuff. It's like. Okay, I'll put out the advent. Okay. I'll find it. I'll dig it out of the basement and find it out. And... You know, I'm doing something different this year. Oh, yeah. I, now that you say this, I mean, it's sort of jogging my mind. I'm reading a Christmas carol to my 10-year-old, oh, and she loves it so far. Right. Yeah, and I get to do all the voices, all the years of watching a Christmas carol. There you go. You know, I've, I've really kind of absorbed the different lines and the characters. I'm really getting into it. So, but that's been my Christmas prep this week. Okay. So I didn't do an advent. Like we have some kind of advent wreath already out yeah. somewhere in the house, but yeah. are you working on anything right now, or you're sort of taking a break for December after well, all your, no, I'm yeah. always trying to stare at the screen and feeling terrible about myself. <laughs> <laughs> that makes for, for what I'm, right. <laughs> for what I'm not writing. Right. But, right. Uh, no, I mean, I always have like goals and purposes. Okay. All of that kind of thing and getting ready for Christmas and travel, going to New York for Christmas. Oh, you are city. Yeah. Oh, wait, who are you seeing? My oldest lives in New York city. I thought I didn't. Okay. He's still there. Yeah. He's All still right. there. Also named Chris. Yeah. And uh, taking the two youngest with me i mean they're like 19 and 22 right so, yeah so we're gonna spend new york for christmas that sounds straight out of a christmas movie yeah maybe yeah. that's hopefully <laughs> not a bad one right right well good well you? yeah uh I'm, i guess novel's coming out. the novel is inching ever closer but yeah. i guess what i really have on my plate right now is i was asked to contribute to a book called kierkegaard and mysticism oh. and i asked for an extension I yeah. way, I mean, for those of you who are in academia, I asked a year in advance because oh I knew God. I had to finish this novel. I knew I had other things coming down the chute at the same time. Yeah. And I was given that leaf, gratefully. Yeah. Um, but now I got to do it. I have a month to oh, finish this project. Okay. And while a lot of it is going to be taken from a, a larger work that I'm currently working on mm-hmm. called uh, Kierkegaard Statecraft and the Question of Political Theology. Right. It's going to be exciting. Uh, a lot of it's going to be taken from that. I still have to nip and tuck, if you will, at the, some of the different yeah. edges of this work and try to sort of form it into a kind of cohesive uh, article. So that's what I'm working on. I'm going to be working kind of at a feverish pace here the next few weeks. Right. But I will make time for this podcast. Of course. Yes. We and will. Right. And so here we are today. We're talking about two films you have chosen. The Lilies. Sorry, there we go. Yes. Lilies right. of the field, not the lilies of the field. They should have kept the the. I know. Just, that's, that's a nitpick it, on my it's part. Interesting why they didn't. Yeah. Right. But so, the, the great 1962 film starring Sidney Poitier. Great. And uh, Lilies of the Field, and I've chosen the Shaw the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Uh, 1994, uh, directed by Frank Darabont, starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. Uh, both are great films. I had not seen Lilies of the Field before uh, recording this, but I enjoyed it. Shawshank is apparently one of the most popular films of all time, so we have a pretty good yeah. episode in store, and uh, we'll take a quick break and come back and uh, dig into it. 
So the lilies of the field, or excuse me, lilies of the field. Right. I need to get that right. I want to add that the every time. <laughs> but uh, it's a movie uh, that I had not seen before, and uh, and you recommended it. And when I watched it, I was like, of course, <laughs> right? Like like this makes perfect sense. And yeah. and of course, it's a, it's a very prominent film. It mm-hmm. was uh, very decorated in its day, mm-hmm. and I frankly had never really heard of it. Yeah. So I, I'm really appreciative that you chose yeah. this movie. I'm like I said earlier, I'm looking forward to hearing how you're gonna approach it great yeah I mean this is a movie that I think is uh, I grew up with and I actually had the book that it was based on as a teenager and I'll talk about that in a minute and read it and it's a I will say from the beginning that it's a really good film to show with your family to watch Mm -hmm. with your family I think it it's not like super profound your family maybe not my family (laughs) (laughs) my family is more Shawshank Redemption (laughs) all right go ahead it can be both right right. it can be both sure um but so it's a film released in 1962 starring Sidney Poitier and a a lot of other people but starring Sidney Poitier who won an Academy Award Mm. for this role it's based on a novel published in 1955 by a guy named William Barrett um very it's one of the novel is kind of one of those very short it's super short it's only 127 pages and they're small pages kind of this short popular novel that you may usually they were humorous in some way that was a standard part of publishing really up until the 70s um and it the author William Barrett was a Catholic uh, I looked into his you know works and he wrote a lot of sort of tangentially or ex- explicitly Catholic themed books um, you know probably on the level of the kind of Catholic quote literature that Flannery O'Connor like excoriated Just, yes, right, exactly. on a regular basis <laughs> not only in her letters but also in her role as a uh, book critic mm-hmm. for the Atlanta Archdiocesan paper. Um, you know, so yeah, so sentimental, right? Just a um, hair too cute for just Flannery. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no shadows, really. Mm. Not really. But I, I do, as we go through it, after we go through it, I'm going to talk a little bit about the differences between the book and the movie. I reread the book um, this week. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it's on yeah. Internet Archive. It took me <laughs> literally 30 minutes to read it. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's why Flair didn't like it either. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So anyway, um, Lilies of the Field is set in the West. It was filmed outside of Tucson. Uh, what I read is that the property where the nuns, you know, Ranchero is, was Linda Ronstadt's family ranch, okay. which is interesting. And yeah. the olds out there will know who Linda Ronstadt is. And if you don't, look <laughs> her up. Um, and... Sidney Poitier plays a guy named Homer Smith, um, who we meet driving on the highway. And he's by himself in his big old station wagon, um, driving along when he discerns that his car, his radiator needs water. So he pulls into this property that has a building on it. And he sees these women working, you know, hoeing, and so on, and he asks them for water. And it turns out, of course, we learn right away that they're Catholic sisters, and they're also German. And so he gets the water, thanks them, and tries to leave. And here we have the central tension of this movie (laughs) in that his character, Homer Smith, is always wanting to leave and do his own thing, while the mother, 
superior of this order, Mother Maria, um, sees in his presence an act of God and an answer to prayers. Right? She's, she, we see her saying at the very early on, she raises her eyes and she says, God has sent me a big, strong man. <laughs> right? And her purpose is not only do they need work done around the property, they need roofing repairs and so on, but she wants to build a chapel. A chapel. A chapel. A chapel. Right. As she and said. she calls him Schmidt. Schmidt. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, on, uh, on purpose? I mean, that's... Well, it's just how they, it would transliterate of course, into German. But she could have said Smith. Yeah. But she kind of sticks to Smith. Schmidt. Yeah. yeah. Schmidt, excuse yeah. me, the whole time. Right. And I think it's, you know, partly a power play. Yeah. Right? Because, right. I mean, that's what kind of what's going on between them is a power competition mm. of power, pride, two prideful people. He says so. Right. Later, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the the course of the film is they're kind of interacting and butting heads and he finally, you know, accedes and he just, you know, he decides to stay and help them build the chapel, the chapel. <laughs> and um, in the process, um, he interacts with this small group of sisters. There's only six of them, I think. Yeah, six of them all told. He helps them learn English. Um, in a way that's more useful to them than listening to the kind of the business-oriented recordings they've been listening to. He makes connections with the people in the town, mostly Hispanic, mm -hmm. um, who eventually get involved in helping to build the chapel, connecting with the priest, a character, fascinating character I'm going to talk about in a minute. The whiskey priest, the whiskey essentially. The whiskey priest, in a way, yeah, <laughs> right. this, at least this Marlboro priest. Yeah, right, right, right that's right. <laughs> and um, he, um, he gets a job, a part-time job, doing um, construction work with a, a firm that's run by a, a racist guy. Mm-hmm. And the racism is present. It's not like played really big, but it's it's there. You know, there, there's no you know the guy calls him boy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and he retaliates. Yeah, <laughs> calls, right. Calls him boy, and then eventually, of course, the chapel's built, and um, Sidney Poitier, Homer Schmidt, goes on his way. So there's a lot more to it, but that's the basic plot. It's the plot of a man who, you know, kind of happens into a circumstance. Perhaps an accident, perhaps an answer to prayer, who knows. In the process, interacts with primarily this other person, this woman, who has her own vision and her own sense of pride. And in kind of the interaction and the engagement between them and the, the budding heads, the pride is like worn away. Mm -hmm. And they are able to, you know, work together to build this chapel so I, w I want to come back to the pride is worn away point yeah just in a in, in a, well, right well but before before we do yeah I, to me i just want to throw out a, an observation you know a lot of times when we've selected our movies we've talked about beforehand okay let's do this let's do yeah. that sometimes the films go together really nicely right. sometimes they don't now in the two films we've chosen for today right. i would have sort of on the face of it said these yeah. have nothing to do with one another yeah but then there is a kind of, I think maybe the, the running theme or the comparison mm -hmm. of uh, might be the films of Frank Capra. And, right. and, and the fact that I yeah. think this film, and uh, is it Ralph Nelson, right, mm -hmm. is the director. I don't right. know much about his filmography. No, but, but there is that sort of like communal spirit that you mm -hmm. find in a movie like It's a Wonderful Life or Mr. Mm -hmm. Smith Goes to Washington. And I think Frank Darabont, The Shawshank Redemption, like, 
clearly is drawing on Capra. Yeah. But the the, the whole for, for those who haven't seen the film, the, the the kind of total sort of impression that it gives you is that of a community coming together right. over a common cause. Right. And and this figure Smith is the the I guess the unwitting gatherer of their right right. Mm -hmm. he's he's the agent right Mm -hmm. who brings the community together to -hmm. construct this tangible good thing Mm -hmm. and it's very much a in that sense very much like it's a wonderful life it's a happy film right right it ends with success it's a comedy uh and i think again that that it strikes me as different from a lot of the religious films that we've highlighted not Mm -hmm. that religious films have to be morose and sort of focused on death but this one is focused on community i would say yeah. right yeah oh, yeah absolutely and it, i think the other thing i mean i have several points yeah besides the spiritual sure. aspect to make about it but you know i've it's there there are character arcs people do change in this film mm-hmm. so one of the most interesting things about the homer smith character to me is he very unwillingly begins this process of building the chapel, but then it becomes his, and he doesn't want people to help at first. Right. He resists right. that. He rejects their help, and he says, "This is mine." And he has a very kind of moving little speech, which, in which he says, "I never thought I'd be able to do something like this." Right. I want. I thought maybe I'd want to be an architect or an engineer, but and we don't know his backstory. No backstory. No, no backstory. <laughs> there's more in the book, but there's no backstory yeah. here. But I never. But now I can't, and I'm doing it. I'm. I'm going to leave something behind that I designed and I built, and you know that that's something that he doesn't want to let go of at mm. first. But then, of course, he you know he sees the benefit that it gives to the others in the community to help him and and benefit to the the whole project to help him. And, and just from a plot yeah. standpoint that shift in his character is important because mm-hmm. it helps explain the question I kept asking myself, which is <laughs> why is he staying? Yeah. Right. For, yeah. You know, and, and he doesn't necessarily see himself as this divine agent. Right. He's just a guy passing through and he consistently right. says, I want to go, I want to go. And he keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of understand that this project is for him also a kind of consummation of his, yeah. you know, desires, his aspirations mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And I think one of the other things I want to point out about this movie that was really struck me on this viewing was, how do I put this, how non-white it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Because the there's only two characters in it that I you could call, you know, I mean, Germans are white, of course, but are like American mm-hmm. in kind of birth, ang- you know, pseudo-Anglo-Saxon, there's the racist right. guy who owes the, con- the construction company and the priest, right. who is of Irish extraction. I think they say he's Irish. It's Murphy. But he, it was yeah, his, but yeah. he's American. Right, but right. everybody else, it's either the German sisters, it's um, Homer Smith, who's African-American, and it's the townspeople the who, local are all, Hispanic who are all Hispanic. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a film that, in which the, um, you know, the usual cast of a film of this period, mm-hmm. right? Which is pseudo Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, whatever, um, is absent. Yeah. It and, does call into question yeah. certain stereotypes about yeah. films from that era, you yeah. know, where, Oh, you know, nowadays we're making more, I guess, progressive films. Representative. That, yeah. But that, that were more <laughs> representative and right. we're, you know, but here's a film that, 
was awarded, uh, you know, uh, I think it was how many how many Academy Award nominations? A it was lot. several, I right? Mean, several, including so, best picture. Yeah, highly celebrated, mm-hmm. uh, but in a very kind of under the radar way, in a way that doesn't sort of call attention to itself. Just mm-hmm. isn't about predominant, if you will, kind of stereotypical white culture, right? right? And right. it's and it does it in such a way that you hardly. It, you just sort of accept that world on, right, on and its, its face. Right, it's telling a story. Yeah, and, right. and I think that's one of the charming things about it. I mean, this is a 60-year-old film, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I think highlighting a couple of differences between this and the book might be helpful in sure. getting me to my my final points about it. So I, <laughs> in the movie, um, as I said, we have no backstory for Homer. In the book we've got back to where he was in the military. Okay. Okay. Which kind of makes sense from the period and has been drifting a little bit since then, but had gained the skills he had in the military. Mm. Um, and there's a part in the book where he actually, he actually does leave. He gets kind of really mad and thinks I've done all I can here. I think they get to a point where they can't get any more bricks at all. And mm-hmm. so he leaves and he right. goes to the big city, which I presume is Denver because in the book it's set in Colorado. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, he, he, he does what he wants. You know, he stays in a hotel. He drinks. He, you know, has, you know, cavorts and all of that kind of thing. He, but he, he does work a little bit, makes a little money. But then he, he sees, uh, he participates in the destruction of a, of a ho- hotel block or an apartment block or something. And salvaged from that are a bunch of bathtubs. Hmm. And he says those girls, the sisters, they could use a bathtub oh, right. instead of just a bucket. And so he buys two of them and takes <laughs> takes them back. So there's, they're on his mind. If they're right? on his mind. Despite his yeah. cavorting, as that's you say. Right. And it's And that's implied, right, in the right. movie that he comes back, he's sort of hungover. He's got, right. like, no, he's, does, I think he, he has looks, like a black eye, right? Yeah, it looks like yeah, he's, been, he's in a nice tropical shirt. He's yeah. Very good, <laughs> right. very cool, right? <laughs> right. But no, it's, it's implied that you know, he's got a little bit of a checkered past, mm-hmm. but that something about these sisters are, are trying to, they're trying to draw out his best right, self. Right. That's what it and, seems like. And the book is not told in first person, but it's told from his point of view. And so you get a little more of his inner, his thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more of what he kind of perceives. He's, he's growing spiritually and it's not like he becomes a Catholic or anything. He's a Baptist <laughs> in the book. He stays Baptist, but it's like, I have a purpose, you mm-hmm. know, it's like right. he's discerning his purpose and, and he sees that maybe this is part of his purpose is to be there. Um, the priest character. Um, so when we first, one of the things that the nuns have to do is they have to go to mass. You know, they don't have a chaplain in residence and they have to walk to the town, the very small town to go to mass. And mass is celebrated by a priest who has to go to several communities and it's celebrated out of the back of a truck i was gonna say or in a van down by the river (laughs) (laughs) yeah he sort of hangs out and he's you know they say that the the cafe owner says he drinks right like he said you don't really see him drink much but supposedly he does he likes his cigarettes and his sunglasses right right right. (laughs) i mean it's a great scene and again you think about this this is pre-vatican ii 1962 i was gonna say what is this (laughs) post-vatican ii right and but he's but he's a really good guy and he he's doing his best you know he's out Mm -hmm. there in the middle of nowhere serving these people and he says in the movie he says you know when i was a young seminarian i had a prayer that Mm -hmm. god would send me you know, right. to a cathedral, and I would be important, and all that. And he kind of motions around. He's talking to Sidney Poitier about this, and his 
um, mobile home. And he says, and he kind of says, maybe God's answered my prayers in some way. Again, kind of the pride thing coming there. And then after the chapel's built, he comes to see the chapel and he's in his robe. So, and they're like Franciscan robes. So I guess he was a Franciscan and he looks around and he's clearly humbled. You know, he says, mm. you know, God has answered my prayers, but in this humble little chapel hand built by the people that he's serving. And so it's, it's just an interesting, you know, sort of one more set of characters, one more character in this film who is, you know, benefits from and grows as a consequence of these supposedly chance interactions. But to me, that's, you know, one of the takeaways from this mm -hmm. is, is it chance? Is it, you know, how does God work in our lives? God works through chance, through mm -hmm. what we see as accident. But is God really sending us to one person or another for a purpose? And, you know, spirit... You know, spiritual writers would say we don't know a plan per, per se but the fact is no matter what the cosmic intention is when you interact with a person that interaction if you are a disciple is to be one in which you understand God's presence yeah, right. there, are, there are levels of causality, right. we might say, in Thomistic terms. Right. I mean, g going back quickly to the priest, Yeah. and you know Graham Greene's yeah. bibliography better than me. Right. Power and the Glory came out what year? Oh, in the 40s. And so that's what yeah. I, I would have guessed yeah. the 40s or maybe early yeah. 50s. It does strike me this is kind of an ode to yeah. to uh, the Whiskey Priest and the Power yeah. and the Glory, in as much as, and this is to your, your spiritual point, mm -hmm. in as much as the priest and li Lilies of the Field is discharging his function, his role. Right. But you can tell he's somewhat, and you say it's just kind of alluded to in the film, mm -hmm. but but he's somewhat agnostic about whether or not it's working. Right. 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 And he, he keeps, but he keeps right. doing it. He keeps right. going. He shows up for the people. He's, I guess you might say he's more of a humanist, but yeah. I'm not sure that he's a believer until the he end. sees right. the chapel being built. Right. And that sort of awakens him to like, oh, there is something working through my failures right as, as exactly it were. Yeah. exactly um so you know that's kind of one of the reasons i like this i mean there are a lot of reasons i like this film one i do just like that slice of life kind of aspect of it being filmed on location and the cast and uh, the diversity of the cast and all of that kind of thing but i really appreciate this sense of like you say community building mm -hmm. and what we are as church as the body of Christ even though you know this is not you know explicitly stated in the film is when we come together we bring our gifts but to share them in isolation is not what we're called to do mm -hmm. you know we're called to share them in community and I, there's a really sweet moment in this movie when, at the very end, after the cross has been erected, he, Homer is on top of there, and he's finished it off, and he writes his name in a place where no one else can see right. it. Which kind of reminds me of when you visit, you know, the great cathedrals of Europe, and I guess there's a few in the United States. <laughs> the great cathedrals <laughs> That's of Europe. That's another podcast episode. <laughs> right. Well, for example, in Milan. Right. You know, you can go on the roof of the Duomo in Milan. And um, it's a great, great 
thing. But when you're up there and you're climbing up there, you see all of these beautiful aspects of decoration and architecture that no one from the ground would ever see. Mm -hmm. And it's always struck me is that these artisans, these people made, you know, took care to make these, you know, beautiful little things and aspects of these structures, knowing that no other human being was ever going to see it. Mm -hmm. So they really were doing it for God, right? You know, only God was going to see it. And so in a way, you know, that's when Homer writes his name at the base of that cross, you know, no one's ever going to see that unless the cross falls down or something. No one's ever going to see that. So it's almost like a prayer in a way, you know, offer a self-offering in mm -hmm. a way. Um, so that's, uh, that's the lilies of the field. It's short. It's an hour and a half. It's, um, very, it's funny. It's very yeah. entertaining. It's mirthful. It's mirthful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's yeah. not slap your knee fun. It's not, no. you know, but, but. There, there are there are a number of scenes where you kind of chuckle or yeah right. you put a smile on your face yeah yeah and I did worry when I kind of I took into what both of our movies were and I thought have we both picked movies with the magical Negro mm. and um, I, I did you know for those listeners who don't know what the magical Negro yeah. is it's it's a character it's it's, it's a name for a trope in which mm you have a situation and the only sane person or the person who fixes all the problems the person who brings the wisdom is the token black person bagger vance the legend of yeah. bagger vance was a movie that was harshly accused for this yeah. uh, driving miss daisy driving miss daisy yeah, yeah sure but i kind of i don't think we have no you know, no i, I, I definitely so. yeah yeah no i mean lilies of the field comes closer to that mm -hmm. stereotype uh, but mm -hmm. but i do think there's good reasons to push back against that. Right, yeah. right. And I will say one more story before you ask me the questions. So um, I have, there's several um, communities of religious sisters here in Birmingham. And um, one of them is called the Sister Servants of the Eternal Word. And as it happens... Where are they located? They're near EWTN. Oh, okay. They're in right. uh, Irondale on the east side of town okay and um yeah it's, their convent is called casa maria they do um retreats are their main thing we used to go to mass there a lot because both my younger sons served there and they were very well trained as altar mm. servers there and <laughs> as it happens my college roommate from the university of tennessee is a sister there. oh isn't that weird anyway so i was at home depot right. earlier this year in the spring, I was at Home Depot, and I, because they're located out here, I see them, like, at the grocery store and stuff, but I was at Home Depot, and I saw... Is that by the Bucky's? It's close to it, isn't it? No, it's not no. that far. It's not that far it's down. Okay, that far all right. Down. No, all right. No, no, no. I was just going to think, next time I go to Bucky's, <laughs> joking, I have been to Bucky's a couple of times, but I've not been to the Bucky's here. Anyway, it's sorry. Very For those of you who don't know what Bucky's is, it's sort of like the Walmart of gas stations, yeah. and there's only one in Alabama, I think. No, no, there's more now. Really? There's Okay. Three now. Oh, yeah. Look we, at us. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We're coming up here. Right. Okay. I always, well, you know, that exit has a Bucky's and it has a Bass Pro Shops. <laughs> and I always say, you know, if I were going to bring like a foreigner to the United States and introduce them to what is America, I would take them to that exit. That's about right. <laughs> and the Barber Motorsports thing. Is there you too. go. Right. But anyway, so I was at Home Depot and there were three of them were there. And this is related. 
they had hoes. They were buying hoes. Mm. And I said, oh, are you all doing some gardening? And they <laughs> said, no, we have snakes. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that's fitting, nevertheless. That's, right. That's all right. I haven't even thought about the question. Oh, Lord, here so, we go okay. then. All right, categories, this totally yeah. impromptu. All right, yeah. the funniest moment. Um, I think the funniest moment is, I'm going to say, the part that made me laugh out loud was when the first morning he's waking up. And he wakes up and Mother Maria is like standing there right in his face, you know, ready to go. But, I mean, that just was a laugh out loud thing for me. But I think in terms of amusement, I would say maybe when he's teaching them English. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They're, like I said earlier, I mean, to me, I didn't necessarily laugh out loud in this right. film. But I'd, every time she called him Schmidt, it made me laugh. Like there's just a lot. Of, there, there is some like uh, who's on first type right. humor that goes right. on throughout the movie. And yeah. uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasant little film yeah. yeah okay all right it's pleasant but what is the most poignant moment i think when he's leaving yeah know, because one of i'll just add this before i say this that one of the the piece of music that came right. out of this um movie that is very famous mm -hmm. is the amen yes you know, the, right. we call it the lilies of the field amen um, mm -hmm. And I'm not going to sing it. Everybody knows what it is. <laughs> and um, so he teaches it to them in the middle of the film. And then he has them start singing it. They're singing it around the dinner table mm. at the end. And he kind of recognizes that it's his time to go. Mm. The chapel's finished. It's time to go. So he continues to lead them in the singing, but as he edges out. And this, the look on the Mother Superior's face is that she knows exactly what's going. Mm. She knows that he's leaving. Now is the time. Now is the right. time. And so it's like she, you know, she has spent all this time telling him, you're not leaving, you're not leaving. And now she respects that it is his time mm -hmm. to go. And I, I thought that was a poignant moment. Yeah, yeah. An another maybe expression of faith yeah, as it were right. that you God know, he, had answered he, her prayers precisely yeah if you could only watch one scene um if you could only watch one scene I would say it would be the scene I mean again we come back to this question of what does that mean does that mm. mean the scene that encapsulates the whole film or the you know kind of the scene that's going to hook you mm -hmm. um I'm procrastinating here um, <laughs> I, I, should, I, should I throw out hints I don't know what do you think well I mean I do I think the scene where Homer Smith writes his name into yeah. the into the chapel yeah because it does seem to be in some respects that's what the film is about which is one reason why I think it does militate against some of these mm -hmm. stereotypes you know mm -hmm. which is you know that 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 this this process of helping them has also been a benefit to him right. I don't know that that's it strikes me as like Kind of encapsulating what the movie's about. Yeah, I agree. I'm gonna hand. Okay. Go with that. that one. Sorry, I shouldn't. All right, best performance. I mean, it seems like this would have to be Portier, right? I think yeah. so. Although I found some of his acting a little bit over the top, mm -hmm. like especially when he was singing. I felt that that was like a little bit too much. Um, you know, the Bill Simmons podcast is a category for best overacting, which is always <laughs> one of the funniest oh, ones they good. do. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, and there's some great performances. They love to pick on Al Pacino and Heat, oh. Michael Mann's Heat, uh, as overacting. Um, and so it doesn't mean just because an actor overacts doesn't mean he's doing a bad right, job. Right, but it might be sort of part of the... Okay, so you yeah. think he's good, but he essentially yeah. overdoes it. And I do, but I'm going to have to give it to whoever the actress is who plays Mother Maria. Mm-hmm. I really do like her performance in that it's, um, you know, she plays in. It, it could be a stereotype, the mm-hmm. tough old nun, right? Right. tough old bird. Uh, yeah, I thought she'd lady. pull out a ruler a couple of times. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you can. I think you. The thing is, you can see underneath every time her, you know, her concern, her worry, her. You know, there is a level of kind of compassion. Mm. There. She knows what she wants, and she is convicted that God's answered her prayer, so she's on God's side. But I think there there's a subtlety in her performance that I appreciate. Okay. Yeah. And then lastly, your ultimate takeaway. My ultimate takeaway is that um, to be open to what God is doing, and any one of us might be an answer to someone's prayer at any time. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion of Lilies of the Field. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Really quick because I have to pick up my daughter at 3 (laughs) p.m. But fairly quick. And then we'll be back and we'll talk about uh, my selection, The Shawshank Redemption. Okay. uh, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, which was released in 1994. I figure that was, you know. Everybody's seen that, right? Yeah, everybody's seen it, right? (laughs) A big year. I was uh, kind of scrolling through. I mean, this is the year that Pulp Fiction came out. Um, I think also, was it the year that Forrest Gump came out? It might have been. So this is a a year filled with, I guess, you know, I say landmark films or films that have come to be kind of defining parts of of popular culture. But this one was a little bit of an oddball. You know, you wouldn't have necessarily guessed that it would come to have the kind of influence yeah. that it's had. So, all right, a little bit of background into the film, less background than I'll, that I gave you with Tarkovsky, <laughs> but that speaks for itself. Um, all right, so this is the first feature film directed by Frank Darabont, uh, who, just as a sidebar, and I don't even have this in my notes, like he did the first seasons of The Walking Dead, which were the best seasons of The oh. Walking Dead. So, I mean, th- th- this is a guy with a fairly short filmography, mm-hmm. but... Where he has directed films, they're, they're usually quite good. And this is his first film. Uh, he was a, a screenwriter uh, in the 1980s. He was working on these kind of like campy, like horror franchises, like mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. and The Blob, um, the remake <laughs> of The Blob. And uh, so he was, he was very much in the kind of horror film genre. And like I said, he, he ended up resurfacing with uh, The Walking Dead later. Uh, but in particular, Darabont had a thing for Stephen King. And mm-hmm. I gotta ask, are you a Stephen King fan? Uh, no. No, not not at I all. I mean, I don't hate him. I mean, except it seems like he's a jerk. But you know, <laughs> uh, is he? I, I didn't even know that. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. no, I, I've never. My I think Stephen, he's a Red Sox fan. And he lives in Maine. That that's right. like my depth yeah. of knowledge of his background. Really. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I've never. I don't even know if I've ever read any of his books. I was. When I was a teenager, my father was reading Salem's Lot, and okay. I looked at it, and I said, oh, I think I'll read that. And he said, no. I said, that was the <laughs> only book my parents ever said, you can't read it. He said, it's too scary. Right. So, well, my, my Stephen King trivia would be this. <laughs> when Villanova and other institutions closed during the pandemic, yeah. I was about 30% of the way through The Stand, oh. Stephen King's novel from the 1970s. I forgot what, exactly what year, but from the 1970s, about a 
worldwide pandemic. <laughs> and I immediately closed it and have not opened it since. So uh, in any case, I'm not a Stephen King fan per yeah. se. I mean, I've certainly seen a number of movies uh, that are based on his novels. I've read bits and pieces of his work, as I just mentioned. Yeah. But I'm not really a fan. But Darabont, Frank Darabont, the, mm -hmm. the director of uh, The Shawshank Redemption, was a fan. And uh, he got in on a deal that Stephen King offered where you could adapt his uh, his stories for quite cheap. I forgot, maybe it's oh. a dollar or something along those lines. Really? Uh, right. And in 1983, Darabont made a film called The Woman in the Room, uh, based on King's short story of the same name, which came out okay. in 1978. And I do think it's kind of interesting uh, connection because this uh, story, and I've, I read through it some this week, uh, mm -hmm. it's about a woman who is essentially in prison, but not in jail, mm. but rather she is in prison in her hospital room because she's mm. suffering from terminal cancer. Mm. And the, the, the sort of main character of the story is her son who is really struggling with whether or not uh, he should euthanize her. So it has this very kind of complex and kind of dark meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, but in some ways uh, it was meant to kind of suggest one alternative, right? To escaping, mm -hmm. you know, uh, pain and suffering. I think we could look at uh, this later work, the Shawshank Redemption as kind mm -hmm. of a different way of, of mm -hmm. approaching that same yeah. problem. But in any case, King had written that story uh, about his own mother and some of the sort of yeah. complex feelings he had about her uh, end of life. And then, of course, he goes on. He writes many more uh, novels and stories. And uh, he came out with a novella in 1982 called Rita Hayworth mm -hmm. and Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. And that was the novella that Darabont decided to uh, feature as his first film. Mm -hmm. Okay, So he starts working on uh, adapting a screenplay. He wants to sort of incorporate his own ideas. As I mentioned earlier in our discussion of Lilies of the Field, he, he also wants to kind of add a kind of Frank Capra touch right. uh, to the Shawshank Redemption. That was uh, one of his major influences as a filmmaker. And, and for those of you who don't know, Frank, Frank Capra is the legendary American filmmaker who had done Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. And one of the core, which we might be talking about soon, <laughs> uh, but one of the core kind of Capra-esque themes, I guess you might say, is that of a, an idealistic hero who is battling and eventually defeating mm -hmm. a corrupt political system. Right. Um, so Darabont, you know, he's injecting some Capra uh, into his adaptation of, yeah. of, of, of King's novella. Uh, and, you know, not surprisingly, as a, as a based on a Stephen King story and people, he gets some interest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, Castle Rock Entertainment. Do you know the whole story with Castle Rock? Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. Rob Reiner's okay. uh, company. And, and, yeah. and Rob Reiner, with, with a really kind of interesting career i was kind of mm -hmm. going through his stuff and uh you know yeah. he, he, here is a guy that was on what all Art, the yeah all of the family meathead. right mm -hmm. he was meathead right yeah. uh he's acted even recently in movies like uh the wolf of wall street by martin mm -hmm. scorsese but here he is you know in the mid 90s excuse me in the mid 1980s he adapts uh, uh the body by stephen king into mm -hmm. stand by me mm -hmm. which is a really good film right. I don't know if, do you right. remember that yes. movie mm -hmm. yeah sort of a coming of age story mm -hmm. and reiner who runs uh castle rock sort of takes a liking to Darabont's screenplay oh. and they arrange for a contract and Darabont heads off to Ohio mostly where they filmed the Shawshank Redemption okay. right because yeah. it was filmed in the Ohio State Reformatory mm -hmm. which is uh, an hour or so southwest of Cleveland uh, in a particularly I guess bleak <laughs> area of Ohio right. right okay so that's sort of the backstory uh, and, and, and I was, you know, I was telling you earlier, Amy, that, you know, a lot of, uh, 
there's a lot of stories about the way Darabont approached this film, mm -hmm. the shooting. I mean, apparently he, again, as a first time director, mm -hmm. he was quite nervous about making things uh, right. He, he asked uh, um, actors to repeatedly do scenes over and over again. Mm -hmm. At one point, there's one scene where Morgan Freeman is throwing a baseball. Yeah. And uh, he was asked to throw so many pitches uh, and I can identify with this right. with the, my, all my baseball kids, but uh, he was asked to throw many, so many pitches that the next day, in order to kind of piss off Darabont, he yeah. showed up in a sling. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so Darabont had there were some, you know, I guess you might say some first movie, mm -hmm. you know, kind of jitters. He wanted to mm -hmm. do it right. Well, anyway, thankfully it turned out to be a success. So, what is the plot of the Shawshank Redemption? I mean, I'm sure many people know, but I'll just kind of run mm -hmm. through it again. Jump in you know, right. have any, if I leave anything out or whatever. <laughs> uh, okay, so the movie centers on a wealthy main banker named Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins. Yeah. And I, kind of a you know kind of an odd role for him. I mean, yeah. again, this is sort of his peak. I think late '80s, yeah. sort of throughout the '90s. Yeah. He's done Bull Durham, The Hudsucker mm -hmm. Proxy. Um, Dead Man Walking. He was mm -hmm. the director of that. So it's kind of a big name at this time. I think originally I read that they wanted Tom Cruise, but they settled oh on, on Tim Robbins. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, that would have been. But, but Tim Robbins, it plays Andy Dufresne, this, this main banker who was sentenced to consecutive life sentences for allegedly murdering his wife and her golf pro lover. Right. Um, sorry to laugh, but this, the golf pro thing just kind of, <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, so, uh, so Dufresne is sent to the rugged and sort of bleak, uh, Shawshank, Shawshank State Prison. And while he's there, he has all kinds of challenges to deal with, as you might to expect. Say the least. Yeah, yeah, to say the least, right? So the, the first thing he has to struggle with is the, this, this sort of gang of thugs and, and, and racists known as the sisters. And uh, I was listening to something recently. They're like, every time the sisters were on the screen, I I went to use the bathroom. <laughs> and uh, and they, it is it is a, a rough go there for a little yeah. bit. Where Andy, you know, whenever he's alone in the laundry room or doing something, the sisters kind of gang up on him, uh, led by this guy named Boggs, who sort of is this you know again this this, this sort of deeply disturbed criminal, and they target Andy. Right? He's, he's seemingly uh, you know, he's intellectual, he's aloof, he's, uh, he's somebody that, that sort of can be manipulated and exploited in some ways. So that's the first major challenge that Andy has. Okay, yes, wait. please. Yeah. Don't they rape him? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Okay. I said they were rapists. Okay. <laughs> you, no, you said you racists. No, no, no. Then, then okay. I just didn't okay. enunciate clearly okay. enough. <laughs> no, they might be racist too. They're definitely rapists. And this so. is not the Frank Capra-inspired part. Right? <laughs> no. I mean, Capra could get dark at times, but uh, yeah. no, no. They're, okay. they, they, they might be racists. They yeah. definitely are rapists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, horrible. Yes. Right. Yeah. So Andy, <laughs> so Andy has this first major obstacle mm -hmm. to deal with. The second obstacle, which turns out to be, at least for a time, the easier obstacle, mm -hmm. is that of the prison staff. Right. Okay. Because at Shawshank, we have some really hard characters, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, we have prison guard captain Byron Hadley, yeah. uh, played by Clancy Brown, who only seems to play this role. Like, again, <laughs> again, I don't know what that says about him. Right. Uh, and this guy, you know, he's the kind of guy that sort of pops off, you know, over the smallest thing, you know. Beats the heck out of you. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. You insult him, he'll beat you up, he'll send mm -hmm. you to the infirmary, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Um, very dangerous man. 
But even more dangerous is the Bible quoting yeah. two-faced warden uh, named Samuel Norton, uh, mm -hmm. played very memorably by Bob Gunton, mm -hmm. to the point that if I see him in a movie, I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's the warden from right. Shawshank Redemption. Right. Um, and it, as it turns out, Andy deals with the sisters by appeasing the prison staff. Mm -hmm. So he helps out, uh, you know, uh, prison guard, uh, sorry, prison captain Hadley helps him out by arranging for some, some tax breaks, uh, you know, on some money he was coming into. Uh, he then is sort of roped into doing various sort of financial uh, planning for the warden and so on and so forth. We'll come back to where that goes later. But once Andy has established that he is a reliable kind of financial advisor um, and sort of inside man in the prison, right. the, the sisters are kind of pushed off the screen. They, they, he becomes essentially un, untouchable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this also, this sort of newfound, I guess, status in Shawshank allows Andy to help out some of his fellow inmates. Uh, and this is where a number of his sort of friendships become important. So his closest friend in the movie is this character, Ellis Red Redding. Mm -hmm. Red, he's called, played by Morgan Freeman in mm -hmm. a very celebrated role. I don't mm -hmm. know if you have anything to say about Morgan Freeman here. I love no. Morgan yeah. Freeman. Yeah, yeah. He's great. Yeah. It, it is sort of, I don't know. I feel like Morgan Freeman has become such a cultural icon. Right. Uh, his voice just alone. I mean, oh, didn't yeah, he narrate so the Bible sort of? I think he I may think have. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I know he played God in one movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it, this is a more real Morgan Freeman, kind right. of a hard edge, cynical, you know, cusses a lot, you know, this kind of thing. And I think uh, it's yeah. important to say that he narrates the film. Yes. Thank you. Right. Very well, by the way. Right, yeah. So it's kind of from his perspective. It's his memory mm -hmm. that we're witnesses of. Yeah, he's he's sort of rehashing the mm -hmm. tale of Andy, mm -hmm. right. So the thing with Red is, is that he's a contraband smuggler. He's the, the man who can get things, right? right? Um, and Andy, now that he's sort of established that he's a reliable guy in the prison, Andy goes to Red and says, look, I need a rock hammer. <laughs> And I need a large poster of Rita Hayworth, okay, the, the great film actress. Right. Uh, and Red says, okay, you know, I can get that for you. It's going you know, to cost you or whatever. Um, and, uh, and slowly, uh, sort of in, as a kind of repayment, um, there, there, there becomes, again, this sort of deep friendship developing between Andy and Red, but also a number of the other uh, prisoners. And they all, they all become kind of a, a community or mm -hmm. something of a family. Um, and... It looks like this is kind of how, in a way, the story would end, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it looks like Andy and Red are going to live out their lives in Shawshank. Um, this is the best they can do, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the problem with that, or some of the challenges raised by that, are, is, is really kind of highlighted on a kind of side story that the movie goes into about a, a prisoner named Brooks Hatland, um, played by James Whitmore, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. who is... Uh, finally discharged almost yeah. against his will, not almost yeah. uh, against his will, yeah. discharged uh, into mainstream society and kills himself. Yeah. Um, and and it, he's elderly. He's yeah. elderly. Right. And he's he's been lived 50 years. 50 years. Yeah. Right. And so Red says, you know, look, this is what happens to all of us. We become institutionalized. It's a really great speech in the mm -hmm. middle of the film. Red says we become inst institutionalized. We become so accustomed to living in prison that we start to see it as our home. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the things that, you know, Andy kind of represents is pushing back against this assumption right. that, that you're, that the, that the sort of personal jail that you're in mm -hmm. is your destiny. Right. right? Um, so in any case, Warden Norton, 
he starts drawing Andy into a number of schemes, right? Uh, he uses him under an alias, Randall Stevens, mm -hmm. uh, as a money launderer. He mm -hmm. washes money for the warden who is taking on all these kind of public works, using the prisoners in order to get rich and so on and so forth. Uh, and because of Andy's, I guess you might say, the fact that he's become indispensable mm -hmm. to the warden, it becomes clear that no matter what Andy does, he's never going to leave yeah. Shawshank. The right. warden will never let him leave. And this becomes especially clear when uh, a young prisoner shows up and claims mm -hmm. to have knowledge that Andy wasn't the killer right. of his wife and her golf pro <laughs> right, lover. And so, uh, and so at this point, the movie kind of turns. Uh, and I think this is probably one reason as a kind of sidebar that this movie has become so popular is because of this fantastic turn. Yeah. Sort right. of three quarters of the way through where right. For a good chunk of the film, it's harsh and depressing in some ways. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, it's very satisfying right, to see right. what happens <laughs> right next. Exactly. Yeah. So here's what happens. All right. In a dramatic turnaround, we realize that Andy has long been using that rock hammer, the one that, that Red got him early on. Right. Let the uh, truck pass. Andy's been using this rock hammer to carve out a tunnel that leads out from his cell into the prison sewer system. Right. The tunnel is being hidden by the Rita Hayworth poster. Okay. Yeah. All right. So on a dark and stormy night, <laughs> after learning, you know, of, of this, you know, further learning of the, the warden's degradation and so on, Andy decides this is his night. He's going to leave. So he, he breaks out of Shawshank. He enters the prison sewer system. As Red points out, he crawls through 500 yards of excrement right. to, to get on the other side of the prison walls at Shawshank and enters the, 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 the free world with the right. arms outstretched, cruciform yep. style, right? Exactly. right? Um, and then leaves, leaves uh, Maine, but not before going to the bank, <laughs> taking the money that right. had been filed under the name Randall Stevens, and he has all the papers. He has right? all the papers, right? right? right. He then His sends, money. right? He, he then sends the, uh, the, 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 all of the kind of details of the fraudulent activities of the warden to the mm -hmm. authorities. The warden is, oh, excuse me, Hadley, the, the right. prison guard captain, is arrested. Uh, Norton is going to be arrested, but then he commits suicide. And Andy flees the United States, crosses the border in Texas, and ends up on the Pacific coast of Mexico. Right where he uh, eventually awaits Red's arrival. And the, sort of the code of the film is Red gets out of prison uh, and there's this sort of opportunity for Red to kind of fall into the same pattern of despair that Brooks had fallen right. into, but Red, as it were, trusting in Andy's uh, vision for him, yeah. takes off to Mexico where they are reunited. Yeah. All right, do you have anything to add to my summary there? No. No? I mean, yeah. just the only thing I would add is that Andy as part of his like becoming part of the the prison system becomes a librarian yeah and he builds right. up the library and helps you know prisoners get their ged and all of that kind of thing so there's a sense in there that he is kind of bringing you know kind of the world into the prison mm -hmm. if, even if the prison yeah. yeah, and Mozart, right? right. Which oh, gets the Mozart oh record, yes, right? Of right, course. Right. How can we after talking yeah. about Amadeus last week? <laughs> right. Of course. Right. I mean, that's that's a great scene. No, it is a great scene, and and so I mean, when the movie came out, you know, as I mentioned, 
um, it was a lot, of, a lot of competition that year for awards and so on. A lot of a lot of uh, sort of really important movies. And this movie was recognized by critics as being excellent. I mean, it was nominated for five Academy Awards, mm -hmm. including Best Picture. I think Morgan Freeman was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mm -hmm. um, but it bombed at the box office. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, many people you know, would have seen it, I guess, if you will, as a kind of failure, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't make back its budget. But then it enters into the world of like cable, yeah. you know, sort of nighttime television, AMC. I think it was TNT in particular mm -hmm. that showed it quite a bit. And it just acquired like a second life. Yeah. Um, and today it is now, you can look this up, currently on the IMDb top 250 movies list, it is, it is the number one film, really? according to IMDb, of all wow. time. Based on, I guess, like their user responses. Yeah. Number two is The Godfather. Oh. It's also ahead of other movies like The Empire Strikes Back and the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. So this, in some, one it could argue, nerve. Yeah. It's a nerve. One could argue that this is the most popular movie of all time. I'm not saying wow. it is. Don't. It's, a, it's not a hot take. <laughs> I'm just saying one could argue. And Tim Robbins said, "Quote." And this is an interesting quote. He says, "Quote: All over the world, all over the world, wherever I go, people say." The Shawshank Redemption changed my life. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, how do we explain that? Right. Why was this movie, this movie, this, this yeah. kind of weird movie with the sisters and mm -hmm. corrupt prison officials and so on? Yes, it's got a great escape scene, but there's other mm -hmm. prison films with great escape scenes. Mm -hmm. So, like, what's you know, what's the big deal? Well, if you think about it in one sense, like it has a lot of these kind of classic religious, uh, I don't know. I, spiritual tropes okay mm -hmm. so we have the battle between justice and injustice right we have maybe the kind of recreation of these kind of it's archetypal moments from religious tradition so i did see that th so there's one scene let me let me quickly back up there's one scene where andy procures beer right as red as red remembers bohemia style beer cold yeah. ice cold suds working in the sun Right. For the for the inmates, he does this by advising the, the prison guard captain on his financial matters. Mm -hmm. This is kind of their quid pro quo. Right. So the men get the beer and um, the cinematographer, Roger Deakins, kind of bathes mm -hmm. the, the scene in, in beautiful sunlight. And there's a kind of transfiguration quality. Yeah. I know some people have said it's more like the Last, Last Supper. Summer. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think it's the Last Supper yeah. for what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, we could, I would love to hear people's opinions on that, but I see yeah. it more as the transfiguration. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, where, where it's kind of clear that Andy is different. Like he knows right. how to, he, he brings goodness to them. Right. Exactly. There's no Judas yeah. figure either in that scene. Right. True. They're all just yeah. sort of absorbing his mm -hmm. radiance, mm -hmm. the radiance of the sun. So you have those things. You have Andy clearly is a kind of Christ figure. Mm -hmm. um, it couldn't be more explicitly stated than as when I mentioned he escapes finally from from the underground, from the underworld, right. from Hades, Sheol, right. however you want to put it, right. and Stuff. into the right. world and opens his arms like yeah. Christ, cruciform mm -hmm. style for all to see. But others have said, well, he's kind of a teacher. He shows us the way. I saw that there's like a Nietzschean reading of oh, this really? film. He's sort of Zarathustra <laughs> or or maybe we might even say a kind of Buddha who offers a kind of path to enlightenment. Right. So you could play with this movie in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways. All right. Now, what I'm going to argue is that I'm not going to argue it you in super detail, but, okay. I, but, I, but, I, but I'm going to just sort of throw out that I think the reason why the movie sticks with many audiences is because it illustrates what Christian theologians have long called the theological virtues, right? Mm -hmm. So those are faith, hope, and love, right? Yeah. And they're just sort of stated in 
Paul's letters um, mm -hmm. and other places, certainly theologians like Thomas Aquinas have expounded on the mm -hmm. theological virtues over time. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to illustrate this point by quoting scripture. You know, apologies. I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. <laughs> I'm just sort of saying like these these scriptural passages, I think, uh, I, I think illustrate why the film strikes such a chord. OK, so first, as for faith. All right. Hebrews 11, 1, quote, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, end quote. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is Andy in a nutshell, right? He continues throughout the film to believe that he can attain freedom and find redemption. There's never a point in the film yeah. where he gives up that pursuit. There's, there's this dogged, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how many times the warden puts him in solitary confinement, no matter how ugly the situation gets, he still believes in yeah. his redemption and he yeah. never gives up. Okay. Right. So I think, yeah. I think there is a sense in which Andy has faith. Now, again, it's not spelled out as faith in God or something, mm -hmm. but it certainly is a faith that there is something in store for him greater than being in prison. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to pause there. You have anything to add to that? Well, yeah. I mean, is, does it matter that his faith is based on the fact that he knows he didn't commit this crime? I don't know. I mean, to me, you could argue that would be a reason to give up even more. And he says yeah. at one point, I'm going to come back to this, I think, but he says at one point, I was just caught up in a tornado, right? Yeah. I mean, this is just, I have really bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And so you could argue that's grounds for giving up even more. Like yeah, the world is just true. chaotic and random. Like why even have faith given how peculiar things can be? Right. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. It just, it just seems to me that it's, easier not not that it's ever easy in terrible circumstances but to have faith when and when you are absolutely certain of the truth well you, you know, know he does say though he didn't kill his wife and right. the golf pro but he says he felt responsible right too yeah that right. if he hadn't been the person he was she wouldn't have felt right. the desire for right. the golf pro. That he right. had been sort of caught. I mean, it was, right. it's implied he was in, caught up in his work. In a and sense, he care. did kill his wife. He says that. Right, yeah. right, right. So I don't think he sees himself as innocent, no. really. No. He's not He's not like an innocent dove, but I think he, right. by the same token, he, he continues to kind of persist that, like, it's the next step that matters. Yeah. You know? and, and he talks about, I mean, when he mentions the Pacific Coast, right? Mm -hmm. And I, the, 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 the name of the town... I, it's a very long name. Yeah, it's, it starts it, with an X or a Z or something. Right, but it yeah. means sort of like where memories are, are yeah. forgotten or something yeah. of that effect. And obviously the, the word Pacific has to do with mm -hmm. peace, peace, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in some respects, Andy's quest is like he's pushing forward towards peace, no matter how bad, no matter how ugly the past is. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. okay, the next theological virtue, hope. All right, here's another quote from Jeremiah 29, 11. Quote, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. All right. So this goes back to what I was saying a second ago. I mean, Andy, Andy admits that, you know, his life has kind of completely gone side, sideways. And there's one point where when, when the, his fellow inmates realize he actually is innocent, they're all like, God, like, <laughs> how bad yeah. is this guy? I mean, right. We're at least guilty, you know. Right. Um, uh, and so he's in this tornado of suffering. But he doesn't let the, the past determine where he's going. He's uh, occupied consistently, and this is, this is stated throughout the film, he's occupied with the future. He's, his mind, like Red says throughout the film, 
it's important that your mind not be occupied on your incarceration, mm-hmm. right? Andy never lets that happen. He's always occupied with how, what's the next step? It's the library. It's helping the people in the, uh, yeah. in Shawshank. It's, it's getting out. Right. And, and it's right. stated, I think another reason why the movie is so powerful is that Andy is working on this tunnel for decades. Right. <laughs> right. right. A little bit at a time, never stopping, always mm-hmm. moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I've kind of jotted down here in a note that, it reminds me a little bit of the Kierkegaardian concept of repetition, which Kierkegaard said, and this is sort of 1843-84, uh, 44, excuse me, that repetition should replace recollection as the key category in philosophy. And what he meant by that, it, 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 frankly, a lot of his um, aesthetic writings kind of suggest that repetition isn't possible. Repetition to me would be something like wanting to recreate, let's say you had a a great moment with your family. I'm just throwing this out there. Okay. I've, for the record, I've not been to Disney World in a very long time, but I'm going to throw <laughs> this out there. Let's say you had a great moment with your family when they were all six at Disney World. Yeah. Okay. Your kids, right? And you right. and your wife and so on. Then you go back five years later, hoping to recapture that right. magic. It's not there. The kids are fighting. <laughs> the weather's bad. It's just not right. the same. Yeah. Kierkegaard talks a lot about how human beings are constantly in search of repetition, like where we want to be able to repeat these, mm-hmm. these pleasures recollection is dwelling in the past repetition is moving forward to try to recapture the past in some way and a lot of Kierkegaard's writings deal with the fact that our quest for repetition is frustrated Mm -hmm. but the only way to actually arrive at any kind of endpoint is to keep trying yeah and I think about like a like a hitter in baseball right you're always you're always working for that perfect swing you know yeah. it's the perfect swing you, if you have a perfect swing you know what it was like and you might it might be a year before you have another one mm-hmm. but you keep going anyway andy's like that he's occupied with the next swing mm-hmm. the next step he's not dwelling on the past and therefore there is a kind of implicit and really not 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 implicit but explicit hope throughout the film that he, you keep working uh for mm-hmm. the future okay final point love okay this is the the greatest of all the theological virtues, right? And I think, I think you know, one of the things that's often overlooked with the Shawshank Redemption is that we often say, well, you know, this is a movie about this guy who never gave up hope and he escaped. Yeah. But we forget that this passage in the Bible, right? John 15, 13, quote, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is the, the kind of maybe forgotten aspect of what Andy does. So mm. he, like you said, he invests in the library, he invests in people, mm-hmm. he invests in relationships, and he works to help others also secure their redemption. So the title, The yeah. Shawshank Redemption, isn't just referring to his escape, right. it's referring to what he does for other people. Um, so when he escapes, there's a kind of vicarious power to it as well. It's like, you right. don't have to feel stuck forever. You know, yeah. there is hope for you on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Andy is redeemed, yes, Justice is served, yes, but it's only truly consummated when Red also is redeemed. Mm-hmm. And he is, right? As the movie ends, like I, like I mentioned earlier, Red gets out of Shawshank. Um, he's really, really uncertain. He doesn't know if he can do it. He kind of summons that faith, that hope. Mm-hmm. He follows Andy to Mexico and he gets there. And that's how the movie ends. So, mm-hmm. uh, so to me, it's a, ultimately the power of this film lies in these uh, theological uh, virtues. So, okay, that's my Great. yeah. So, what are, what are what are the categories here? Okay. Um, well, first, can I like say my piece? Of course, always. Yeah. So my movie 
person card is going to be revoked here. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll hand it over to you. Okay. Okay. So I had never seen this movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, I don't know why. Yeah. It's hard, hard, hard to understand. Hard to we understand. won't judge you too harshly. <laughs> I think I have a resistance, even though you said it was a flop. You know, it, it, it does have like, uh, you know, a cultural kind of cachet totally. to it. Yeah. And I have a resistance to watching things that like everybody tells me I should watch. <laughs> I just do, you know, and it's, uh, but anyway, so here's my confession. Not only that I not seen it before Sunday night. Okay. Is that for some reason? <laughs> totally. I have no idea what you're about to say. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought this was a Coen Brothers movie. Oh, okay. I thought this was a Coen Brothers. Yeah. And so I'm like watching it, looking at the credits, and I'm like, wait, this is not a Coen Brothers. So movie. I don't it know lacks why. that that the dark humor and the well, yeah, satirical. Like, I mean, it wasn't right. a Coen Brothers. I, right. mean, I think it's just because of the title, maybe. I mean, yeah. I knew it was based on a Stephen King story. I knew that. But for some reason, maybe because of other um, Coen Brothers, like, titles, Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, right. Barton Fink. All that kind of, I thought it, but anyway. So it's from that era, for sure. Yeah, and the, maybe the Tim Robbins thing threw you off. Yeah, yeah. It was, like, really stupid. But anyway. <laughs> As confessions go, that's a pretty mild one. Yeah, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, okay. I've not revoked your movie card or anything. <laughs> okay. All right. So, funniest moment. Okay. So, th there's a couple of yeah. sort of lighthearted jokes, especially amongst the inmates. But for me, the part where I kind of chuckled was when they're they're screening uh, Rita Hayworth's movie, Gilda, right. 1946. Right. Um, and Andy... Walk, you know, kind of sneaks into this prison screening and he, he says, you know, basically is like, Red, Red, Red. Yeah. And Red says, Stop. And this is a quote. He says, This is what I really like when she does that shit with her hair. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the movie then cuts back to Gilda, the movie, the, right. the film they're all watching. Right. And Hayworth is asked, Gilda, are you decent? And she suddenly appears on screen. And suddenly, I mean, like out of the, like from the <laughs> right. bottom of the screen, right? She, she appears on screen with this coy flip of her hair and says, me? <laughs> and everybody in the in the prison cell just starts cracking up yeah. and laughing and whooping yeah. and everything. And I do think in a way, again, it's these these little moments of like beauty that mm -hmm. that are they, they provide sustenance to them. And I think it's their right. their joy at this very innocent, but but nevertheless, you know, kind of charming moment right. in, uh, you know, in this movie by, by Rita Hayworth. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, all right, most poignant moment. I, for me, it's that scene with Brooks living outside of the prison, oh gosh, right? Yeah. And uh, it, it, you really, it honestly makes you think a lot about what prisoners go through mm -hmm. when they're discharged from. You know, it's a, it's kind of an ethical, a kind of serious ethical note in a movie that obviously has a lot of these allegorical and kind of religious mm -hmm. themes, but. But what it must be like for somebody who is, as Red says, institutionalized and then suddenly to find themselves in the normal world. Right. You've got your, quote, freedom now. Right. right. Yeah. Here's yeah. your freedom. Nobody talks to you. The, right. the, the job manager mm -hmm. you know, puts you down. You have no friends. Mm -hmm. um, there's that moment where Brooks wakes up. He's, he's not sleeping. Mm -hmm. And when he finally kills himself, oh. uh, it is uh, it, it sort of shows you what happens when you don't have hope. Um, and I think it's a really important scene for that reason, but it's it's definitely very poignant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If you could only watch one scene, I mean, it's got to be the prison escape. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. it's it's brilliantly set up, conceived. The first time you watch it, you're like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Future viewings will sort of reveal like how intelligent Andy's plan was all right. along, and there's just a lot to 
to take in there, but it's a, it's an absolutely brilliant scene. It is great. All right, best performance. Okay, so I mean, Morgan Freeman's the obvious choice here, and I, and I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, gainsay that, and I, I agree with you too. I mean, really, very underrated his narration mm -hmm. of the film is really mm -hmm. good. But James uh, uh, Whitmore's rendering of Brooks yeah. again is pretty incredible. I mean, there's yeah. there there's not a lot of screen time, and I, I guess the reason why I'll go with with this portrayal of Brooks is that you don't really understand what Andy has achieved until you understand what mm. Brooks could not achieve right. for himself. Right? right. I mean, he's Andy is is able to sort of make sure that the Brooks story can't happen again, at least to his friends, yeah. right? I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to extrapolate that too far, right. but Andy gets back what is lost, right? That's what redemption means, right? To mm -hmm. get something back. Um, he, he secures meaning and hope, but you only know the power of that redemption once until you've seen the, the demise of Brooks. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then ultimate takeaway. Okay. So I, I mean, I might as well just quote the Bible again, yeah. but I think, I think it works here. So, uh, cause I, I do think in a lot of respects, that's what this movie, this is what this movie is about. All right. From first Corinthians 13, right? Uh, Paul writes for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. You think about how the movie throughout the movie, mm -hmm. there's all this, like everybody has these perceptions, right? About mm -hmm. their worth and their value and so on. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. So mm. I think those three virtues uh, really characterize the film. And I think, you know, I don't know if it's an explicit, I don't know, a kind of recognition of the, I guess, the Christian animation of secular culture. I mean, somebody mm. could argue that, right? How these Christian virtues are, I think about Gianni Vadimo, the philosopher, that mm. these Christian virtues are kind of transmuted into secular culture. I mean, maybe to some extent, mm -hmm. but I think it shows you that we have an abiding desire for these things we, right. we we all need and want faith hope and love right? right and this is explicitly what the christian tradition recommends to people as like these kind of spiritual goods that are worthy of nourishing at all times so i think ultimately that's what the movie's about i think that's why it's been so successful yeah yeah, yeah. all right what do you think i think i want want to for one last time try to tie the two of them together yeah please do this is yeah. something that just occurred to me so um you know in the current moment, we talk a lot about, you know, personal self-actualization mm. and um, the purpose of life is to find your, you know, find happiness and fulfillment and all that kind of thing. And it seems to me that what both of these films express is that the most satisfying, and I think you used this word, the most satisfying way that that's lived out people, you know, using their gifts or finding freedom is one in which others are brought into and others are helped. Because like you said, with this movie, you know, it could have been just about Andy mm -hmm. and his, uh, you know, his struggles and his, the injustice against him and his struggle to be free. And it could have just focused on him. But by bringing you know, the Morgan Freeman character into it, bringing Red into it, bringing kind of the whole, what he gives to the whole, um, you know, his community. And then in Lilies of the Field, it could have been about, you know, whatever this, uh, you know, Homer's self-actualization or, you know, desire to express what he really knows he's capable of or the sisters desire to create a chapel for themselves. But the fact that they affect each other mm -hmm. and they build community as a result of it. 
makes it, you know, far more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. No, I totally agree. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it shows you that these sort of classical virtues, yes, they serve the individual, but they mm-hmm. also serve others. And that right. seems to be, in many respects, the point of both movies, ultimately. Right. You know, and that in serving others, you also help yourself. Right. Which is nice thing right love your neighbor as yourself we so did it. we tied them together boom, we did it and <laughs> the thing is too is that you you also paved a really nice path for our next film selections which will yes. deal with christmas right we'll come back and we'll talk about these next week we will not tell tell you what no. they are yet no i think i dropped a hint in this right. episode but one will be very surprising yeah right, <laughs> right right it's not going to be even, elf I, it probably should it probably should be elf if we, if we were really thinking about, you know, the number of hits we would get. Actually, I might twist your arm to choose out. Uh, but in any case, we'll come back next week. We'll talk about Christmas. Hopefully the weather holds out. And until uh, then, hope everybody has a good week.